<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Now, longtime listeners of this podcast know, while most of the time we are unearthing horror movies that were never made, on occasion, I like to sit down and pick the brains behind the most exciting voices in horror. We have done it recently with the directors behind Scream 6. I've done it with some of my favorite movies, including Werewolves Within and the Mortuary Collection. And today, we are sitting down with the writer and director behind 2023's Vision of Children of the Corn. So today we are joined by writer-director Kurt Wimmer. Today he is talking about his new vision of horror, bringing the Stephen King short story Children of the Corn back to life. His film stars Alana Kampouris, Kate Moyer, Callan Mulvey, and Bruce Spence. Please enjoy my conversation with Children of the Corn 2023 writer-director Kurt Wimmer. Kurt, first of all, how are you today? How's it going? Uh, it's good. I'm like super busy. You know, I'm writing a screenplay live online, I'm posting it, the raw data every day. So oh. Oh. It's, it's just crazy. You know, it's like on top of everything else that I'm doing, you know, so uh, every day on YouTube, literally I put up a cut down version of the day along with my commentary. 
on okay. it, why I do what I'm doing, and then I put the raw data. So for anybody who's an absolute masochist and they want to watch every word as it's being typed, that's there as well. Blank page to the end, and then we're going to, God willing, sell it, and then we're going to make it, and blah, blah, blah. So I think everyone here is going to want to see that happen. But before they do, can you do me a favor and introduce yourself to the Development Hell audience? Oh, yeah. Um, my name's Kurt Wimmer, and I am a, uh, a filmmaker screenwriter and a director and a producer and i've been working uh, making movies for about four decades now and i intend to keep doing it for a long long time today we are going to highlight talking about your film children of the corn but i'm also going to want to dig into movies that you've made and movies that you wanted to make but didn't really get the chance but to start things off i'm wondering how did you first encounter children of the corn where did this property show up to you? Were you always a fan or did it land on your desk? Um, it came kind of, kind of across my trance and a, a producer friend of mine had the, the rights, the remake rights. And um, he said, um, hey, are you a fan of Children of the Corn? And I lied and I said, yes. <laughs> and, and then, uh, and, but I also did, saw the writing on the wall. And, uh, and, and by the way, I, I'm talking about the movies, not, not the short story when I say I lied and said yes. Um, uh, and, and I um, and um, I quickly went and wrote the script without even asking him because I just I thought I saw immediately the tremendous potential potentiality of it. Um, putting pretending you know if this is like a multiverse and the other eleven sequels never existed, mm -hmm. you know. But there's tremendous potentiality I thought in elasticity in the template that Stephen King had had created along with the title Children of the Corn. And there was, there was so much packed into it that at that time he told that when it was about religious fanaticism and that worked really well at the time. Today that wouldn't work so well, but I thought this is also really has a very powerful children and corn, a very powerful ecological theme to it and political uh, theme too, in terms of, you know, how um, adults are running the show and they're running it into the ground and the we all know that the earth is not getting better, it's getting worse. And the kids are the ones who have to live with it, you know, down the line and we're not, but they don't really have a say. And so I thought, wow, this is, you know, King, you know, like really great authors, he creates things that are, um, they're so, they have such a fluidity to them that they can be retold through a different lens, you know, every so often. Mm -hmm. And because, because the, the, the story, the concept of killing children, the feeling that their parents have been corrupt or adults are corrupt and and taking matters in their own hands to correct the world is a story that should not only be told once. And so other people saying, well, they already made that movie. Don't they have any new ideas? Well, you know, they keep telling Romeo and Juliet over and over again. They're going to keep telling it for different audiences. And there's no reason why today's audience, you know, because there is not a, a subgenre of kids killing adults movies. There's just not. There's only Children in the Corn. Village of the Dam is the only other movie I can think of that does it. So, you know, um, so aside from the 11 remakes or whatever the hell they were, it hasn't been done to death. Um, and this story should can and should be told for each generation. And it would be unfair and it wouldn't work to say, well, hey, just go back and watch the one from 1982. You're going to love it. Well, they're not going to. They're gonna be like, what the hell is this? Like a bunch of you know religious freaks, and they're like, it's not, it's nothing that's relevant to my world. Mm -hmm. But you know, the concept of 
um, GMOs being adults putting GMOs in the soil, um, Roundup exploiting the, the corn, which is you know the earth fundamentally and for their own greed and own benefit, and in the process killing the world that the kids live in and play in every day. That's highly relevant, I thought, to today, and that's why I was attracted to it. Now, I'm a huge fan of Stephen King. That said, I've never actually read the story, Children of the Corn. Was this film particularly inspired by the story itself or did you go in your own direction? Or maybe it was a both? It said we went, we went in our own direction, but it's entirely just inspired by the story. I mean, without that story, there's no, nothing, I, I could not have done anything I did. Um, first of all, it's a title, Children of the Corn. Like I said, corn is earth, children is future. Um, if you are a child of the earth, and somebody's fucking it up, you better protect it, you stand protected. So there's that. But his story was, um, it was told through the eyes of adults. And to me, it's the children who are the victims, uh, not the adults. So I just saw no reason to tell it through the, the uh, eyes of the, the adults. But his story was about children who perceive their parents as being corrupt, morally corrupt, and they take uh, corrective action. So it's the same story, same title. It's about children, it's about corn, and yeah. it's about killing adults. Books, movies, it doesn't matter what. Do you remember your first encounter with Stephen King? Do you remember your yeah, first? Yeah, sure I do. It was Carrie. I read the book. I can't remember if I saw the movie first or rather the book. And I still watch that movie all the time because it's just uh, flawless. Yeah. What do you think makes Stephen King so ubiquitous and just so universal? Well, that's what I said. Yeah. He's telling these universal stories, um, uh, like Children of the Corn. I mean, it, it, the concept of children rising up and killing adults is something that will appeal to every generation of kids because every kid wants to kill their parents at some point. And, um, and you know, it's like I, I adapted a movie called, I didn't adapt it. Um, I borrowed heavily from Misery when I made a movie called Spell in 2019. And because, you know, waking up, you know, you, you get in an accident, you wake up in some old lady's house and you're in the middle of nowhere and you're like, what the fuck is going on? That's ubiquitous. And you and and that story can and should be retold through different lenses. And um, mm -hmm. so I, I think that's why, why he, you know, he speaks to basic fundamental human emotions, usually uh, in subconscious paranoias and fears. And they're things that everybody can relate to. And that's what all movies and all stories should be. I'm an anxious guy. I have a lot of phobias. Do you have any specific phobias or anxieties of no? Uh, I don't like spiders crawling on me. Okay. That's a big one for sure. That's about, that's about it. That's a bad one. I also love monster movies. I don't know if I'm, I don't want to give too much away, but this has elements of that. The he who walks? Yeah, I think you might be the first person to ever sort of dig into who that is or what that character looks like. Where did the inspiration for that, for that? Well, look, from? I mean, it, it's again, it's in Stephen King's, it's in his short story. It's He Who Walks. He talks about He Who Walks Behind the Roads. So I'm like, well, if you're going to make the movie, you might as well go for it. Um, you know, uh, and but you know, as you're well aware, probably is it, there is a debate that is unspoken in the movie about whether that he who walks is real, you know, because these kids are breathing in this this corn fungus and they're all hallucinating. I mean, Bolin clearly is hallucinating, 
yeah. at the beginning of the film is what you know what what it really happens. These kids are playing in this dying corn all day long, breathing this stuff in. So there's a question of whether it's real or it's it, it, it's a mass hallucination or it's a manifestation of these kids' uh, trauma, and there yeah. is and and or is it or is it an allergic response by the earth to uh, all of these chemicals, these GMOs, these modified organisms and Roundup that they're putting in adults in the soil? Or is it in fact actually some sort of mutation, this chemical mutation that comes in the soil? I actually don't know. And I really enjoyed that in the movie when I was making the movie, just not knowing. Mm. And when people would ask me, I'd say, I don't know. I really like that you brought up the theory behind the Salem witch trials that everyone was just hallucinating and freaking out and panicking. Uh, What brought that into this film for you? Well, it just writes itself. I mean, again, King does things. He just put a template down. It was so rife for for exploitation. It's corn. It's kids going crazy. It's just obvious, you know? I mean, what, what makes you know, and it's true when I was making the film, we go through the corn, you know, and it was just about blooming. These massive clouds of, of pollen and spore would burst up everywhere. You'd be like, I'm breathing this stuff in. I mean, you could hardly breathe. There was so much of it in the air. Uh, and it was kind of creepy. I have a feeling that the horror community is going to resonate with Eden as played by Kate Moyer. She did. She delivers a, an excellent performance. How did you find her? I uh, well, uh, we uh, we looked at every young lady in America, and that you know that wanted to be an actress, and we found a lot of a number of really really good ones. They're all good in different ways, and we, yeah. we also set it on Kate, which I'm very glad we did because she's. Uh, I, I agree with you. She's a sensational actress, and she taught me a lot. Um, you know, I, I will say, I, I, I honestly believe she's the best actor I've ever worked with. And I made a movie with Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, watching her was really, really fun. I think she also brings an element of almost humor and camp to the role that was like really refreshing. Um, did you intend that with that character? Or is that something that- I, to- I totally did. I mean, we, we had to, I totally did. We probably- you know, my producer and I, we argued about it all the time. He was team Elena Boleyn and I was team, I was team um, Eden. Same. And, uh, and I, th- there was even more humor from her, and, you know, due to his influence, we tamped it down, rightfully so. Um, but, you know, listen, I, I, it's a very tough movie to make because of the cons conceptually, you know, when King did it, he, he did himself a service um, by having it all happen off screen. Then you didn't have to really deal with, can this really happen? I mean, what, how the hell does this happen? How do kids actually take over a town? I mean, they're kids. Yeah. So, you know, having to do it. So so you have to find this sort of tonal path, or I, or I felt that I had to, that was very, very complex. And how do you make it so that it's not like, uh, come on, or it's turgid or laborious. You have to make it somehow a little bit fun. And uh, I loved Eden, you know, Eden's my hero in the movie. And, uh, you know, she's a little Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she's mean. Some of the deaths in this movie were meaner and more grisly than I was expecting. And I really liked that about it. <laughs> but yes, because this was shot, what was it, 20. before the pandemic? It was, we were the only movie in the world shooting. We started shooting April, uh, April first week of April, 2020. Holy so, crap. so terrifi- if anybody took it from anybody, Terrifier took it from us. 
Uh, so you were filming in Australia. Did you film in Australia to yes. escape the pandemic? Or is that just something that- No, 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 we were, it, the pandemic started happening when we were there. We started prep, you know, basically, let's say first day of January, 2020, when nobody had heard of COVID and we were doing our thing. And just this, this rumor starts trickling in and you're like, what? Uh, sounds like bullshit. And then the first person dies in America, the guy, it's not going And then like, and then it's going crazy. Then every movie is just shutting down. You know, the production offices next to us was the, um, one of the Marvel movies, and it just, they went at 11 o'clock at night, they went and knocked on every door and said, you're all going home. Wow. And we were the only ones that said, you know what, we're gonna do it, we're gonna go for it. But it was, I mean, it, the situation was so bad that Kate Moyer got on the plane, she's Canadian, she connected in Los Angeles, we got on the plane with her mother, she's 11 years old. She got on the plane to fly to us, Sydney, Australia. While she was in flight over the Pacific, in the middle of nowhere, Australia shut down. Whoa. That was how bad. And, it, and if it had shut down before she left, three hours before, that would have been it. She wouldn't have been allowed to fly. It would have been over. She lands and she's like, wow, I made it. They're like, yeah, now you're going into quarantine. Welcome to Australia. For, and so she went to a hotel room, you know, with her mom for 14 days. And uh, that was, I mean, like, it was, it was crazy. I mean, absolutely insane. The weeks, the two weeks leading up to the beginning of shooting, it was absolute chaos. Did it feel like you had sort of escaped it by being somewhere so far away from, from America and from, from everything? No, we definitely felt it there, you know, because we were the first people, we were the first film uh, to shoot in during the pandemic. We invented, you know, um, we had, uh, you know, John Heaney was working with us in, in uh, Australia. Uh, sort of safety coordinator and then a very good first AD, Sean Harder, and they, and along with Lucas Foster, the producer, they kind of put their heads together and came up with a lot of the protocols that were ultimately used to go on and shoot during the, the pandemic. But we definitely didn't escape it. Um, we had to adapt to it. And it, you know, it was, all, all movies are difficult. So I don't, so it didn't really make any difference to me. It was just another challenge in making a movie. But, you know, we had a lot of kids you know, we were dealing with a lot of kids. So yeah. in the middle of a pandemic, you know, you're really, really conscious of, of what can go wrong. And, um, but we, we did it, we made it through, no one got sick. No one got sick, so there was no shutdowns, there was no pauses? Not, not one, not one person. How long was your shoot? It's about, as I recall, it's about 29 days. That's, I don't know if that's lucky or if that was, you guys really had it together, but kind both, of both, a miracle. Both. It, it's both, you know, it's both, right? I mean, you, you can't, it's, 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 um, um, God, what's that, Edgar Allan Poe, um, the mask of the Red Death, it's the mask of the Red Death, you know, which is COVID, which is, you can try to keep it out, but, and maybe you will for a certain period of time, and Australia did that, they tried to keep it out, but yeah. you can't keep it out. Well, the islands lasted longer than a lot of other places, like New Zealand. They did, but, but, then, they got, but then they got whacked. You know. Was there a sense of like fear and dread or were you guys able to still have fun together in, in the shooting environment? Or did it feel like- yeah, the we, were, we, had a, we had a great time. We had a great time. We created our little bubble. Yeah. And that was it. These are the only people I saw and we saw. Um, and it was like the rest of the world kind of didn't exist once we got, once we got started. There were some ch real challenges. Like we had to like, at some, we had to start 
you had to clear out sets every 25 minutes, which is extremely difficult getting the really tight schedule we were on. And, you know, clearing out a set is very difficult to begin with. I mean, it's hurting blind squirrels, especially if you're dealing with children, lots of children. And then reassembling that set 15 minutes later is equally challenging. You lose a lot of shooting time. So it created a lot of pressure, um, practical pressure in that respect. There's something eerie about creating sort of an ecologically themed thriller while the earth was, you know, trying to shrug us off the way that it was. Like, did, did that parallel ever strike you when making this movie? It, it didn't occur to me until you just said it. <laughs> Interesting. It's strange. And it's kind of cool that it all happened at the same time. But then it, I feel like, I remember hearing about this movie, I think in 2019 and 2020, and really wondering where it went and being really excited when it finally got announced. Um, why was there such a long pause? It's easy, COVID. I mean, the, the theaters shut, were shut down for at least two years until Maverick, you know, you could argue maybe No Way Home, but I think that was very rare exception. Maverick changed yeah. everything. That was like nine months ago or something like that. So it wasn't until then that you could, you know, I mean, we we wanted to release we tried to release it but we realized this is just a disaster if we do it and uh so we're like you know what let's just bat down the hatches and wait until the world god willing returns returns to normal there's a motif that i found interesting in the first half of the film where eden is particularly fascinated with the queen of hearts can you talk a little bit about that choice well, you know, that it's, as she says, the queen of hearts, she makes her own reality. You know, she wants uh, to paint, yeah. you know, the roses are white, paint them red. Hmm. You know, that's like the, 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 uh, the ultimate example of somebody who controls reality. And Eden, of course, you know, and Eden lives in her own, like all kids do. They live in a fantasy world, you know, that they're creating, they're playing pirates, you know, they're making each other walk the plank and stuff like that. It's all, everything's, you know, fun of games, their connection to reality is different than ours. But, you know, she admired someone who takes control of their environment. And that's very much what Eden's, you know, Eden's personality trait. She takes control uh, of her environment. Yeah, I, I like the part when they're painting the corn with blood, that was a nice touch. This is, I'm assuming by far the biggest Children of the Corn film that's ever come out. But I'm wondering, did you take the time to go through all those bizarre direct-to-video sequels or, or any of them? No, no I, I, I did. I might have watched one. I don't remember. I watched the original, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this is the biggest or not. I mean, this one's not very big. It is. You know, I think I would say that it probably is. Okay. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. perhaps. It, it certainly didn't feel like it, but Interesting. Um, so if you're okay with it, I'm always really fascinated in talking to filmmakers about projects that never made it to the finish line. And you've been in this industry for a little while now. Has there been a number of projects that have been trapped in development hell? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I learned very early on not uh, to give my screenplays to people to when they're when I don't you, you at a certain point sorry mm -hmm. at a certain point you start to learn to listen put your ear to the the railroad ties of Hollywood and hear the sort of 
universal locomotive that's either coming down those tracks or not. And if you don't hear it, and if I don't hear it, then I won't surrender my material to them. I do everything I can to put them into positions that where they're going to get made, where something is going to get made. And if they don't, if they're not going to, I don't put them in a position. I, I just have them here and they're waiting to go. I'm just waiting for the right opportunity to stick its head up. And then I'm going to, you know, whack a mullet with a script. Do you have anything in your desk that you are particularly attached to and would like to see get made next? I have so many things, that countless, that I that uh, I, I intend to get, it's not for sure next, you know, in the next 20 years, I just want to make as many films as humanly possible. And there's not a real, there's not a real hierarchy to it, you know, and they're, they're all different too, you know, there's some that I just want to produce, and then there's, you know, a few I want to direct, and there's, you know, and, and some are big, and some are very small, and some are sort of medium, you know, wiki, uh, John Wiki action type, action films, et cetera. So they all sort of fit in different buckets. And mm. um, I want to see them get made for different reasons and they get made in different ways. I've seen, you know, you, you haven't done a whole lot of horror, but there's this, and you were talking about Spell, which is another recent film of yours. Is there anything horror in your desk that we can hear about? Well, you know, I honestly, again, I want to say, hey, I, I don't think that these are horror spell wasn't horror either. You know, oh, it's, okay. it's like, well, it's like misery. Misery wasn't horror. I think it is. I but would argue that it is. It, it, you know, I mean, like, it's not a, it's not supernatural. Um, okay. I mean, it's a kidnapping. It's a kidnapping film. It's, you yeah. know, but, but, um, so, um, yeah, I've got one that uh, we're thinking about making called Angelino Heights, which is just, you know, two people in a house. Um, Angelino Heights is a, is a um, neighborhood, an old neighborhood here in Los Angeles. So uh, horror is very, very difficult to do right. It's like comedy. Um, high, the, the tone has to be just right to really, really work. And I really respect horror for that reason. And, I'm, and um, I would handle it with care. I mean, you just can't throw a monster's blood and, and I hate jump scares. I hate them. I mean, maybe you could tell from, Children of Corn, there really aren't any jump scares. Maybe in the movie. one, yeah. Yeah, there's <laughs> not no, much. Right, no, I, I can't stand sound stings. I think it's just really, really cheap. And, mm -hmm. you know, so to me, it's the sort of psychology, it's like, it's like Carrie. It was all about the psychology of the character and the struggle that she was going through and how she dealt with it. If you were given carte blanche to any of Stephen King's stories, do you have an idea of what you would want to pick up? No, I there's I, I don't think there are any that I would take on. Mm. Um, they've done most of them, and I mean they've all been done pretty well. Uh, so I mean I, I don't know what I could bring to it. I mean Children of the Corn. Fortunately, these eleven things were, I think from here from what I hear, so not very good that it was it was kind of wide open to do it. You know, hopefully, what was be uh -huh. better than, than they what they've done. So, but you know, when you're talking about other things that have been made by uh, Stanley Kubrick, etc., you know, or mm -hmm. Brian De Palma, that's not really the case. Well, I mean, he famously hated Kubrick's version of The Shining. So. No, I know he, I, I know he did. I know he yeah. did. But nonetheless, that's fair. Enough. Go, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to go there. Um, was I, I thought I heard rumors. I don't know if people at home realize this, but you wrote and directed Ultraviolet, right? Yep. I thought I heard rumors once upon a time of a follow-up to that. Was that ever real or was that 
Oh. No, I don't. I don't think so. I, they literally made, you know, I think in Japan they stole it and made a cartoon out of which I don't care. And uh, all, all <laughs> kinds of manga things were going on. I mean, they were obsessed yeah. with that. Yeah, for the, obvious, for the obvious reasons, you know, it was it was sort of manga before that was a thing. Yeah. So you've never heard of any rumblings of of a future for that property? No, no, I haven't. Okay. Was there ever a horror movie when you were young that fucked you up the most? That really left you rattled? <laughs> well, you know, there's different kinds. Like uh, again, you know, you look at one of the great ones of all time is Rosemary's Baby, and I just absolutely love that movie. Um, but that's all psychological. And there's not a jump scare in that movie. And I love the fact that, um, when I was a kid though, you know, like um, my parents snuck me in to see Night of the Living Dead. And I was like, that was genuinely scary to me. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, is it almost an adult when I saw The Entity, you know, the Barbara Hershey movie. I said, that yeah. movie is scary. And, and I'm amazed at how much they did with so little in that movie. Um, you know, genuinely scary films. You know, if you even look at Alien, which is a horror film, even though it's theoretically sci-fi, that's a horror film. That's a monster in a house movie. And that's actually works as a horror film. So, you know, but that's why I say those movies are few and far between the ones that actually, that actually work. You know, like Suspiria is very creepy, um, but, you know, weirdly creepy, so creepy that you don't want to revisit it again. <laughs> like, it's like, mm -hmm. that was too creepy. Have you seen the uh, remake? I started watching it. Okay, okay. All right. And not even just a horror movie, but like commercial or movie that wasn't necessarily supposed to be scary. Like, do you remember of anything really disturbing you when you were young? I have to go back to Night of Living Dead. That's the one that sticks yeah, out in my head, you know, because I really remembered I, the graphic nature of that, you know, when I was, I must have been, I don't know, I was three years old or something when it came out. Mm. And, you know, I just, the images still to this day, I can see them so vividly. Mm -hmm. I can see so absolutely vividly. There's no other movie that, um, that, and I loved horror films when I was a kid, you know, I was a massive famous monsters uh, fan. And, and I was, and I lived overseas a lot of my life and that I would just, and all they played was like Mexican vampire movies. And I'd eat those up too. You know, and all the Hammer films, I, I love them, even though they're not even remotely scary. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, I love them just because it's theoretically the genre of, of horror. And, uh, and I remember when I was a kid, I lived in Berlin and I, I would go around because there's a lot of military, US military there. And I went around to everybody's offices with a petition to get more horror films on the one local uh, United States services television station we had. And everybody yeah. thought I was crazy. I was this 10 year old kid going and saying, <laughs> sign a petition for more horror films. And I realized they all started, thought I was saying more R, R, like R rated films. And they were scared and they said, they'll just sign it to get me out of the office before they got, you know, um, brought up on charges or something like that. But yeah, I was a great, great lover of horror, but most horror films are not scary. Correct. Yes, that is true. You know, I mean, when most recently, I thought The Witch was one of the best, most creepiest movies I've ever seen. And my hat, hat's off in, in that movie. Um, although, yeah. that, although, although The Devil as puts Puss in Boots was kind of odd. But other than that, I thought it was so spectacular. Would you consider that a horror film? The Witch? Well, so yes, no, witches. As I said, I think it's a horror film. You have to have a supernatural element. And when uh, The Devil shows up in the movie, then it qualifies as a horror film. Um. And when witches and when witches start to fly, it's qualifies as a horror film. Well, speaking of devils and witches, I'm curious. 
in your life, do you ever believe you've had a supernatural encounter? Is that something you believe in at all? No, it's not. Unfortunately, I don't. That's an, and you have to believe you have to believe that if you're going to make it through life as an adult, walking outside in the dark at night or sleeping alone in a dark room with the closet doors just cracked slightly open. Yeah, I'm like you, but I'd like to believe. I'm always keeping my eye out, but there has yet to be any kind of proof. But you'd be surprised how people answer that question. Some people now, are out there. Look, I, I believe it, but, uh, you know, we always have, you know, it's just like religion. Some people um, want to or need to believe in religion in order to get through life. Mm -hmm. And some people believe, you know, uh, like in superstition, a lot of people believe in ghosts. I mean, it's really crazy how many people actually believe most in, people in ghosts yeah people percent of america believes in ghosts yeah 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 they, they do that's because you know i think we've all even even those of us who don't believe in we've been walking at night and then suddenly you get that tingle and you're like oh shit suddenly i, I believe in ghosts for right now until i get my ass in the house and then i can and then i can stop but you know even today these days sometimes you know you're walking you know you're hanging out in a graveyard and it's two in the morning and suddenly you get that weird chill it's mm -hmm. strange. It's odd. I, I know. I and I mean, listen, would yeah. you sleep in an empty grave at night on a bed? In an empty graveyard or in the actual grave? No, in a grave that's been dug. Just the hole. They're dug the hole. Would you go? Someone says, I'll bet you. You'd have to pay me at least a grand. 50 bucks. No, 50 bucks. more than 50 bucks. Well, wait a minute. It's 50 bucks, 50 Listen, bucks. I'm not scared, no. but I don't like being uncomfortable. No, well, yeah. uh, I'm gonna say at a certain point in that night, if you're all alone, you're gonna start thinking. You would, you start would. Thinking. Maybe you'd get a good idea for a movie, so it would become quite valuable. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. You never know. So we kind of talked about this earlier, but I'd like to circle back. What is next for you as a filmmaker? Are you already on to the next project, or is it just in the? Well, project? we're making um, the Beekeeper, which David Ayer directed and Jason Safe and Southern starring. It's coming out later this year. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, it's about beekeeping. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, it's everything about this thematic. You know, I'm very, I'm fast. You know, everything is, is thematic. I mean, as you can see, Children of the Corn is highly thematic. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I always I start with character and theme. And bees are really interesting creatures to me. You know, like corn, they're kind of fundamental to life. And um, beekeepers, the people who keep these beehives um, are very interesting the way, you know, these bees have these very metered um, societies and cultures. And, you know, there's so much part of our, our parlance and our traditions, you know, busy as a bee, et cetera. You know, they've got the Bernini bees um, that you can see all over Rome in the friezes and the carvings, you know, which were part of the, 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 um, the papal family. And you know the bees were on Napoleon's standard, so bees and Charlemagne's standard. You know bees—they've you know, been cultivating bees going back to you know beyond before Greece. And mm -hmm. mead, the first alcohol, was made from honey. You know bees and bees, as we know, they pollinate everything. We'd be screwed without bees. I just found it fascinating. The beekeepers are these guys we think of in white suits that come and you know if the queen dies or something like that, they can put a new queen in and revive. At hive, but it's very fascinating that there is a force out there that is watching over the equilibrium of society. And now when the beekeeper comes to the beehive, the bees are unaware of it. 
the bees are unaware of this big fucking dude. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to swear. They're unaware of this big guy in this white suit who's mm-hmm. reaching in and pulling out the queen and putting in a new one or lifting out, you know, the screens and rubbing off the honey and the wax. They're unaware of that. And so in some ways, it's almost like a divine force that's watching over their, their, their highly functioning society. And so I find the concept of beekeeper really fascinating, especially if there are people out there, you know, who are beekeepers who keep an eye on our society and take corrective measures when shit hits the fan. Did you say you filmed it already or not yet? Yeah, we're done. We, sh- we finished mm-hmm. it in, uh, in November and David's busy putting it together right now. Did you get stung at all? No, nobody got stung. No one got stung? No, but we had EpiPens on the set just in case. Okay. Uh, I know if you're familiar with Candyman, Tony Todd starred in that. There were tons of bees. And he had a, a contract clause that every time he got stung, he got a thousand bucks. And I think he left that set with another like $25,000. Oh, 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 really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. We shot it in, uh, in England, in the countryside outside of London. And the bees are nice there, apparently. Mm, they're a little more chill. They're a little more relaxed. Yeah. 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 yeah they're, they're more cultured. All right. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. It was fascinating. Congrats on Children of the Corn. It's really fun. I hope everyone at home will give it a chance. And yeah, I hope we chat again sometime soon. Uh, It was great. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.